Whether a pastor is full-time or bivocational, it is important that he is called by God. The important thing is the pastor's call. If you're a minister of the gospel listening to this message, would you be able to defend your call into ministry? Remember, Paul did it in verses 1 through 3, in three simple verses. And I think that's important for all of us. It's not that God calls every one of us to be a pastor or to be a minister, but he calls every one of us to minister to others. And it's important that we're able to defend the call that the Lord has given us. Welcome to The Cleansing Word. We invite you to stay with us as Pastor John Pinnell of Calvary Chapel Lake Villa takes us through a verse-by-verse study from God's Word. Each Monday through Friday, we'll be airing messages to encourage you in your faith that you might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you enjoy this broadcast, and I'll return at the close of this teaching to give you more information about our church and how you can obtain a copy of this message. Now here's Pastor John with today's message from God's Word. So today we're going to look at an imposter or an apostle from 1 Corinthians 9 verses 1 through 14. And we find in the first point, verses 1 through 3, the seal of Paul's apostleship. Then in verses 4 through 7, the defense of apostolic privileges. And then verses 8 through 14, God's designated provision. I want to go ahead and read our first point and then open us in prayer. The Word of God says, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 3. Am I not an an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Or are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Well, we're looking at the seal of Paul's apostleship here in verses 1 through 3, and In some of the Bibles, it makes it look like verse 3 begins a list to prove Paul's apostleship, meaning that beginning in verse 4, he begins to list out those details. Personally, I believe that Paul stated it backwards, that he said, this is the defense of my apostleship. And then you look back to verses 1 and 3, he actually pointed out four things to defend his apostleship. Well, we learned back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the church in Corinth had become a divided church. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 12 and 13 tells us, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
Although Christ is not divided, his church is often divided. These divisions can happen locally, nationally, and even globally. Locally, the division in a fellowship can cause a church to split into two separate churches. Nationally, divisions happen because of different beliefs about God, Jesus, his word, or the work of the church, thus forming different denominations. And globally, these divisions naturally occur because of our cultures, our differences in cultures, but also these different church denominations. This was, though, more than an argument about who led the Corinthians to faith in Jesus Christ. Some were actually questioning Paul's authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul's defense was fourfold. First, he, he asked the question, am I not an apostle? An apostle simply means one who is sent forth with a message or an ambassador. As an ambassador, Paul brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, but also to his Jewish brethren. In Romans eleven thirteen, Paul says, For I speak to you Gentiles as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul and the twelve apostles, this title referring to they're carrying forth the gospel, but also the authority given to them to establish and oversee the first century church. Paul called an apostle of Jesus Christ. He said, by the will of God in 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul understood that being called an apostle of the Lord was God's will for his life. Secondly, he asked the question, am I not free? This Greek word for free simply means to be exempt or unrestrained, not bound by any obligation. And Paul would tell the church in Galatia, in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, or we might say the freedom, by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. If Paul had a mission statement, it might have read like this. We renounce rights for the sake of others. We forego valid personal claims. We do not make our freedom a basis of superiority, but in genuine freedom, consider the conscience of others. In 1 Corinthians 9.19, we'll get to this next week. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win the more. Paul asked the question, am I not free? And surely he was. His freedom was found in Jesus Christ, not in Judaism, not in the law, Mosaic law, but in the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And yet Paul took that freedom and made sure that he didn't abuse the freedom that had been given him, but he became a servant to all, that he might win more to Jesus Christ. His third points his third question, haven't I seen Jesus? In Acts chapter 1, we find the guidelines for the apostles of Jesus Christ, that first century apostleship. In Acts 1, 21 and 22, it says, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, that day that he ascended into heaven. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. We know there in Acts chapter 1 that it was the 
uh, points that they laid out for the replacement of Judas who had betrayed Christ and Matthias became that 12th apostle there. But Paul argued, haven't I seen Jesus? So the three points that was given in Acts chapter 1 verses 21 and 22, an apostle had to been part of the larger group of disciples starting from the beginning of Jesus's ministry. An apostle had to have seen Jesus ascend into heaven. An apostle had to be a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. And although Paul did not qualify with the part of being with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry or seeing Jesus ascend into heaven, he did qualify in the third point of being a witness of the resurrected Christ. First on the road to Damascus, the Lord appeared to him in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. We read about that. And then later on, even after writing this passage of scripture, the Lord would appear to Paul in a prison cell in Jerusalem in Acts 19, 9 and 10. So we know, according to scripture, at least two times the Lord had appeared to him. Besides this, there in Galatians 1.17, Paul tells that he spent nearly three years in the wilderness area of Arabia being discipled by the Holy Spirit, that he wasn't discipled by man, but by God. In Galatians 1.15-17, it says, When it pleased the Lord who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And so we know through the timeline of Paul's life that this was about a three-year period, which uh, is interesting to me because we know that according to the Gospels, uh, the 12 disciples spent how many years with Jesus before his death? burial and resurrection and ascension into heaven? About three years, right? So about the same period of time was spent with Paul in preparation as with the other 12. Well, to sum up Paul's defense, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was free through faith in Jesus Christ. He had seen Jesus and the Corinthian believers were rather the work or the seal of his apostleship. I actually skipped the first fourth point there. He asked, are you not my work? Paul argued to the Corinthian believers that they were a living testimony of his apostleship. In 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. And so the fourth point, are you not my work? Of course, the Corinthian believers, they actually became the seal of his apostleship. And so we find in this first point where Paul argues his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ, where he proves his seal of apostleship, that all believers should be able to, I saw in this, all believers should be able to defend their faith. Now, take note that Paul's defense was only three verses long. It had four questions and a few sentences, but it was rather short, wasn't it? Sometimes we believe as 
Christians that it's hard to come up with an answer or a defense for our faith. But I would challenge you just to try to make it simple. Try to make it simple as Paul did here in three verses. He defended his position as an apostle of Jesus Christ. We can do that as well by simply looking at the word of God, but also the work of God in our own lives. So I would challenge you today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to prepare to have a defense for your faith. And, and don't think that it needs to be like a 10-page a discourse. It can be as simple as a few sentences. I would challenge you to think about your own spirituality and your walk with Jesus. Next, we find the defense of his apostolic privileges. And there is a stark difference between the 12 apostles and Paul and Barnabas. First, the 12 were supported by the church. And second, they could actually travel with their wives. That's what Paul is bringing up in verses 3 through 7. We look at verse, actually verse 4. He asks the question about the right for provision. So I, I titled verses 4 and 5, the 18. He said in verse 4, Do we have no right to eat and drink? Well, the right to eat and drink refers to the apostolic support that the other apostles received. Although Paul argues their right to receive this type of support from the church, they often refuse this support from the churches that they ministered to. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 9, he said, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Once again, Paul denied the support from the church in Thessalonica. In fact, in one of the passages, he said, we robbed other churches that we could minister to you freely. And so it was important for Paul to represent Jesus Christ and to represent him well. But he asked the question, do we have no right to eat and drink like the other apostles? They were supported by the church, but also in verse five, the right of family. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cyphus? And he singles out Peter, Cyphus. He singles out Peter here. I'm not quite sure why, but he has been singling out Peter all the way back from chapter one. He keeps throwing him into the mix. And although children are not mentioned here by Paul, the illustration of a believing wife speaks about the right of an apostle to have a wife, but also the responsibilities of the church to provide for their families, that they're the apostles. We might say today that pastors would be supported by the fellowships that they minister to. And this was something that the 12 apostles took advantage of, along with Jesus's half-brothers. We know uh, two of those brothers, James and Jude wrote two of the epistles in the Bible, but two others are named for us, Joseph and Simon in Matthew 10, verses, verse 55. But also, again, he singled out Peter. In 1 Timothy 5, 17, Paul said, Let elders who 
rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Let those who rule well, the elders, the pastors over a fellowship, be counted worthy of double honor, but especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Let those who rule well, the elders, the pastors over a fellowship, be counted worthy of double honor, but especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Truly, the A-team, the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, of whom Paul referred to here, held that place of double honor. But verses 6 and 7, we discover the B-team. Was it only Paul and I who have no right to refrain from working, he asked in verse 6. It appears that the A-team, the 12 apostles, Jesus' brother Peter, received adequate support from the church, while the B-team, Paul and Barnabas, often had to work with their own hands to support their ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul said, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not burden any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Paul actually gives us three examples from life to support uh, those who are supported by the work that they do. And the examples of a soldier, a viticulturist, and a shepherd. First, the soldier. Well, actually, we read all three of them here in verse 7. Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? A soldier rarely goes to war at his own expense, unless he's Rambo. 2 Timothy 2.4, Paul would again write about this, saying, No one engages in warfare, entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has enlisted him as a soldier. So a soldier rarely goes to war at his own expense. A viticulturist, actually referring to someone who cultivates grapes, is the first to eat of his harvest. 2 Timothy 2.6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of his crops. It's the joy of growing the crop, right? To have the benefit to be the first to share of the fruits of that and then share it with others. And finally, the shepherd is free to drink the milk of his flock. In Isaiah 7.22, talking about the children of Israel when they come out of captivity, though low in number, Isaiah prophesied, and so it will be from the abundance of milk they give, that they will eat curds. For curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. And so this is talking about a difficult time in the nation of Israel, and yet also talking about receiving the fruit of the work of their hands, that of the sheep and the milk of the goats that they get, that they'll be able to share in that. So whether a pastor, a lay leader, a church member, as believers in Jesus Christ, sometimes we have to fall back on past experiences to help support our families and ministries. And if so, we need to make sure that these works do not harm, but rather supplement the work that God has given us to do. So whether a pastor whether a pastor is full-time or bivocational, it is important that he is called by God. The important thing is the pastor's call. If you're a minister of the gospel listening to this message, 
would you be able to defend your call into ministry? Remember, Paul did it in verses one through three, in three simple verses. And I think that's important for all of us. It's not that God calls every one of us to be a pastor or to be a minister, but he calls every one of us to minister to others. And it's important that we're able to defend the call that the Lord has given us. And finally, our last point, verses 8 through 14, God's designated provision. In verse 8, Paul speaks about scriptural support. Everything he had just talked about, he starts using the Bible now to defend that which he has previously written. And I think this is important for us as well, that we are able to use the word of God to defend our faith in Jesus Christ. It's good to be able to say, thus says the Lord, and not to say, well, this is my opinion, because we discover in our world today that there are a lot of people who have a lot of opinions about a lot of different things. But if we're able to stand upon the word of God and simply say, well, this is what the word of God says. And here Paul is doing that. He said in verse eight, do I say these things as a mere man or does not the law say the same also? Understanding the importance of the authority of God's word, Paul supports his three examples taken from life, that of a soldier, a viticulturist and a shepherd. He supports these with scriptural truths. We live in a day and age where truth concerning Jesus and his work of salvation has been greatly distorted. Therefore, we must be able to reason and persuade concerning the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ by using the word of God. Let the word of God stand. It is not what I say, but what does God's word say? Isaiah 55, 11 tells us, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return void to me. It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. In verses 9 and 10, he continues, For it is written in the law, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 25.4. Is it the ox or oxen? God is concerned about, Paul asked, or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes should in hope be partakers of his hope. The Mosaic Law states that the ox that walked in an endless circle around uh, a post treading grain for humans could freely eat of the grain that he was treading. You didn't muzzle him to keep him from eating. As you can imagine, an animal treading grain for human consumption does bring about some questions of sanitation. Well, way back, one of the founding fathers of our country, George Washington, he dealt with this issue in this way. Back in the days of George Washington, there were two main ways that they would thresh grain, either by hand, which was slow and backbreaking, or by having horses trample on it. But once again, horses trampling on the grain, you would think, although much faster, not very sanitary. 
And so to solve this problem, George Washington built a 16-sided barn where he could have a team of horses running in a circle on the second level of this barn. He made them run that it would keep them from urinating and defecating on the grain. So that's a good thing. But there were slats in the floor that would cause the grain to uh, go down to the first floor that they could uh, collect the grain itself. It was simple. It was practical. And it was a good invention that kept that contamination from taking place. But Paul adds a deeper lesson to think about. I, I think about reading that passage of oxen treading grain. And my mom, we used to call her Mrs. Clean. And she would have had a big problem with that. Paul applied a deeper lesson to the oxen treading grain, which can be applied to all labor that anyone does, whether plowing or threshing. A labor works in hope of partaking in the harvest, whatever his work might be. You work in order to partake in. And today we might say we work to get a paycheck. We may not actually use the product that we build or make, but we work in order that we can support ourselves and support our family. Calvary Chapel is a fellowship of believers in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our greatest desire is to know Christ and to be conformed into His image by the power of His Holy Spirit. If you would like more information about Calvary Chapel, or if you would like a copy of today's message, please contact us at 847-265-0646. That's 847-265-0646. Thank you so much for joining us today, and may the Lord richly bless you as you worship Him today.